0: Hi, everybody. This is Bill Fulton, editor and publisher of California Planning and Development Report. And today on our podcast, as usual, I'm here with Josh Stevens, but it's a special day because Josh's new book, The Urban Mystique, has just been published by CPDR's sister entity, Solomar Books. Uh, It's available uh, from our website, available on Amazon and elsewhere. It's a collection of Josh's writings over the last decade or so at CPDR, Platt Edison, and elsewhere. So it's just a very exciting moment. Uh, So welcome, Josh.
1: Thanks, and I am very excited. And Bill, I have you to thank for giving me the opportunity to write in CPDR, which is where a lot of the material in the book is from. And the book was actually your idea, Um, (laughs) and I appreciate that, and it's really exciting.
0: well, uh, it's very exciting, and we're hoping that, that a lot of people will read it because it's got a, really, a lot of really great stuff in it. And maybe the book was my idea, but the title was your idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, the title is The Urban Mystique uh, Notes on California, Los Angeles, and Beyond. And I'm just kind of wondering, how did you come up with this title? Uh, you know, What's So Mysterious About Cities? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, why The Urban Mystique?
1: Well, you know, I think there's a real challenge in writing books about cities, because just about every title that has the word city or urban or some combination has already been taken. Um, and I was brainstorming, the urban mystique just just hit me, and I was first thrilled that it hadn't been taken before. But it actually has a lot of resonance for me, because historically, obviously, the title is inspired by the feminine mystique by F- Betty Friedan. Obviously, I'm a man, I don't you know, I don't have firsthand experience with feminism, of course, but a lot of what The Feminine Mystique is about is about actually life in the suburbs and not just the life of women, but life of mm. suburbanites in general. Mm. And I had alluded to Betty Friedan in an essay that I wrote literally 10 years ago when I was in graduate school that I later published on CPDR sort of about Jane Jacobs, but also about Betty Friedan, who was writing at the exact same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, they, were contem- Ford, they were contemporaries.
1: Yeah, they were contemporaries. And, and their books came out literally within something like 12 months of each other. You wow. know, Jane Jacobs, Death and Life of Great American Cities, cool. the you know, most prominent <laughs> book on urbanism of the past half century, and likewise, Feminine Mystique. Um, So it was a stroke. So it, it sounded like a good title. And what it really spoke to me was Friedan was writing about her ambivalence about life in the suburbs about sort of the domestic ideal, which, you know, she revealed was not necessarily that ideal. Likewise, Jane Jacobs was writing about city life and what was ideal about city life, but writing at a time. When city life was under attack by urban renewal, under attack by suburbanization and white flight and so forth. And even though I grew up in a different time, you know, I, I mark my upbringing in the 80s, roughly, and in Los Angeles, not on the East Coast. Um, I also felt a lot of ambivalence about growing up in LA and in California. And I think that the mystique here is. We have wonderful things about California and wonderful things about L.A. And we have very appealing myths about California and about L.A., the Golden State and coming to be a star and and all that and and the glamour. And a lot of that is true um, in the great weather. And that's definitely true. But the cities, I think, in a lot of ways are are challenging. Um, I won't say that they're lacking or that they're bad, but they're challenging. and that challenge continues. And that's the, that's the challenge that I think we, you and I and everyone else has been writing about, um, you longer than I have, but I, for the past 10 years, that everything we publish in CPDR are about these sort of incremental efforts to make cities better. And we can define better in, in millions of ways, obviously. Um, and we can disagree about what better is. But I think what this book is, you know, in that it spans about 10 years, is an expression of, that tension about what's good about California about, and, and cities generally, about what's bad about California and cities generally, and just sort of tracing my conception of, of what might make it better um, in a lot of these opinion pieces. So to well, me, that's, that's, that's of, the
0: mystique. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because um, I remember LA in the eighties as an adult and it was really the time when LA first came Uh, to see itself as a world city and to see itself as urban i can remember in about 1986 uh, chris Leinberger wrote a cover story for the atlantic called the big orange right Mm -hmm. and there's a there's a businessman uh, dressed up like an orange uh, you know very proudly strutting down the street and and so really your childhood and your upbringing the years of your upbringing were the years when la uh, matured and began to face for the first time the idea that it was a truly urban place, not a suburban place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that's part of the basis of the book too. But your ambivalence, one thing that I find really interesting about what you write, particularly in the introduction, which is a new piece of writing, is that uh, you grew up in West L.A. in the 80s and and the 90s, and and you know, L- West L.A. in those days, still to this some extent. Um, was one of those California, not quite urban, not quite suburban places. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, there is ambivalence there, too. What was it like growing up in West L.A. at that time? And and how did that shape your thinking about cities and the way you wrote this book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the introduction, I think I refer to West L.A. as neither fish nor fowl. It It was not this suburban ideal, which I think did exist for some people, where Kids played baseball in the street, and everyone knew their neighbors, and they went to the neighborhood school, and maybe parents did, you know, call out at 6 p.m. to have everyone come in, you know, come in for dinner and so forth. And I think there's something really appealing about that, um, you know, the the safety, the security, the socializing. Obviously, the bad things about that are the segregation, um, both racial and and socioeconomic, um, you know, and we, we could talk forever about what, what's bad about the suburbs, but I think there, there are definitely good things about it. Likewise, um, for a kid, I think there are great things about growing up in a true city. You know, when I think of the loop in Chicago, I think of Manhattan, I think of Boston, I think of, you know, San Francisco, the city. Um, You know, I think when I got to college and hung out with a lot of East Coast kids and I had family of my own in Manhattan, so I was very aware of what Manhattan was like and the idea that even at, you know, in eighth grade, kids could hop on the subway and, go explore. Um, or the city was so dense that even if they went to, say, private school and had kids from all over, ever, all their friends were accessible. I think there was a level of sophistication um, and urbanity, literally, in, for kids who grew up in cities like that. West L.A. Um, was really in between. It's not, a, it's not totally a suburb. It's not you know, picket fences and so forth. It's not neighborhood schools, but it's definitely not Manhattan. Um, It hasn't, as you you said, and as Christopher Leinberger said, it has an urban sensibility. I think I knew that I was growing up in a major city, especially because of of Hollywood. But, you know, in a lot of ways, West L.A. was sort of quiet and and modest. Um, So there wasn't I wasn't growing up in the excitement. I think in a lot of ways, L.A., especially in the 80s, was a very adult city. I think if you were in your 30s and working in Hollywood, there were cool parties and galleries and museums and you know, a lot of excitement about the business that was going on in L.A. But for kids, um, it doesn't really cater to that. And and I think in some ways, some cities do cater to kids. Like if you grew up in Paris, you know, again, you get to be wheeled around in a stroller around the great streets of Paris. And by the time you're of age to walk on your own two feet, you get to walk around it. Um, L.A. is obviously auto-centric. So until you're 16 in West L.A., you're really out of luck. Um, mm-hmm. So... I think that, you know, I I was lucky I had one or two neighborhood friends and that was great. Um, But some of my friends lived, you know, off in the valley and who knows. So in terms of how that influenced my journalistic sensibilities, um, I don't think there was a single moment when that hit me. But I think that looking back on what it was like to grow up in L.A. and about what might have been good and what might have been bad and even what's good and bad about being an adult in L.A., I think is still fairly palpable to me. So I tend to view cities and view urban planning in terms of how will this affect day-to-day people? You know, what are some things that would make life nicer, better, easier, more appealing, more humane? Um, And I think that's a lot of what's in this book.
0: Now, you grew up in West LA, but you went to college in New Jersey and then you went to graduate school in Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, What do you think and you write quite a bit in this book, not so much uh, pieces you've written for us, but pieces you've written for others about other cities and particularly architecture in other cities. And of course, you've traveled all over the world uh, in your career for the last 10 years. What, is, what does LA and California have to teach uh, the rest of the world about urbanism at this point, do you mm-hmm. think?
1: that's a, that's a great question, and yeah i've I've been lucky to travel and I've written about Tbilisi, Georgia, and I've written about Honolulu and I've written about I think Dubai and china and and that's been obviously phenomenal experiences, and I think you know everyone who loves planning should love to travel and should love to see how it's done differently and I, I think that's the key is that things that would be unthinkable in Los Angeles because they're illegal because they're too expensive because We have a culture here, and I'm very interested in urban culture. We have a culture here that says certain things aren't acceptable. You know, for instance, to put apartments above ground floor retail, a lot of people would consider that to be heretical in Los Angeles. But you go to literally any city in Europe, Paris, Berlin, London, take your pick, and that's the norm. So I think it's important to travel and see what is normal in other places and what we like in other places. And then to think about why don't we have it here in California? What what are the impediments, whatever they may be? Um, so I think a lot of my writing sort of speaks to that conversation. Um, I think what is great about California, um, I mean, a, a few things and, and some of them are kind of by accident and some of them are not related to the built environment. I think in a lot of ways, our greatest asset is our natural environment. Um, our mountains, our beaches. All those things are really phenomenal. Um, Like Berlin is a wonderful city, but there's nothing topographically interesting about it. LA is topographically incredibly dynamic. Um, And of course, we took this land from native peoples who were here long ago. So when I say we, um, that's with a huge caveat. But, But we do, you know, for better or for worse, have this incredibly dynamic natural environment, which is often at odds with a built environment that I think is fairly mediocre. You know the traditional low-slung commercial strips and the parking lots and the wide boulevards and the unwalkable places, and it's almost like we've gone out of our way to build things that are ugly in compensation for the spectacular
0: natural environment.
1: <laughs> but beyond
0: so, kind of the opposite of the opposite of Berlin in a certain yeah, way.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of European cities are—they have rivers, which is great, but they're otherwise just kind of flat. You know, they and. Um, but they've you know but their architecture is phenomenal and the places that architecture creates are phenomenal. But I think what's truly the greatest thing about California is the human diversity that sort of despite its shortcomings, California has attracted and allowed and welcomed people of all stripes, of all income levels, of all hopes and dreams and they've you know, they, they get along, not without tension. There've been tensions, there've been dark periods, but, but on the whole, and I think especially in the past 20 years, the attitude towards openness um, is fantastic. And I think we do really do genuinely embrace diversity. And a lot of my pieces allude to that, um, especially some of the pieces related to Trump and sort of the urban tensions around him. Um, so I think our human capital here is extraordinary. And if, if if we can incrementally improve the built environment, then I think we've really got something special.
0: Let's talk about Trump for a minute because you're probably the only urban writer who has written about the president kind of as an ur- urban or anti-urban person, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, in a, you have a whole section in the book called Developer in Chief. Uh, Trump, one would think is a very urban person. He grew up in Queens. He's built his whole career around around Manhattan and yet he 's kind of an anti urban president and and how do you see that? how is that uh, how has that affected uh, w- the way cities have gone in the last few years mm-hmm. since he was elected president
1: yeah i mean it 's harrowing to imagine what the alternative would have been harrowing in that what we 've experienced under Trump and what we could have experienced for the better under somebody else. I think that the, the paradox of Trump among many is that he's obviously from the city. Like he, you know, he is the quintessential New Yorker by some, um, at least by some account of his mythology. But obviously his voters are, are largely rural and suburban. His voters are not urban voters. And he has chosen to appeal to them, at least rhetorically, rather than to honor his own background by strengthening cities. And I think, you know... What's frustrating about that is that you know American urban policy, I think, has always been a mess. You know, to use the technical term, um, for a long time, and I think that's a function of a lot of things, including the way the federal government is structured and voted on versus the way that state and local governments are structured. But you know, organizations, organizations like HUD, um, you know, have, have have not nearly lived to their potential, even under you know, say, Obama, who who was truly you know much more pro-urban president. And when I think about, you know, the way that Trump thinks about cities and the way that he's probably ne- you know, neglected HUD and neglected urban issues. And, you know, even today, we're talking a day when there are riots in Minneapolis and he's, you know, not doing anything to help that situation, um, either in the, you know, the, the protests or in the root cause. Um, you know, I, I think what's kind of amazing is the way that cities have persevered despite neglect under Trump. Um, and the way that cities have asserted themselves as bastions of diversity and as bastions of the economy. You know, our economy runs out of cities, our economy as important as, say farms in Iowa are, our economy takes place, we are a knowledge economy, they take place in San Francisco, New York, in LA in Chicago and Boston. Um, and that has kept going um, despite lack of support from the federal government. So I guess in in, in writing about Trump, I implicitly am thinking about a day when we have a different president who does support cities and about what that could look like and what that could mean and the, and the bounty that that could bring.
0: Well, speaking of cities persevering, we are living in a moment now, the COVID moment, where a lot of people are saying cities are over or cities are bad or density is bad, um, including our good friend, Joel Kotkin, who has written, his uh, book seen during the COVID uh, period has both written an article about called the end of New York, and another article in the LA Times saying that that uh, LA uh, survived because pe- everybody drives uh, during COVID. Um, you have a whole section in your book called which deals with Joel and others mm-hmm. called density scold. You call them density scolds, um, and I'm just wondering. Uh, and you've tangled with them a lot in your writing career. I'm just wondering. How do you see urbanists such as yourself uh, uh, rising to the moment uh, 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 to deal with this question of is density bad? Is it bad for public health because of the pandemic? Uh, I find a lot of people, I, I, I read a piece uh, um, in Foreign Affairs yesterday by, 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 by uh, Jennifer Kesmeet, the former uh, the planning director of Toronto, which I found kind of overly defensive about cities, mm-hmm. right? And so how do you approach that and celebrate cities and present what cities, what's good about cities in this moment without feeling overly, without feeling overly defensive um, uh, or, or, or antagonizing uh, suburbanites?
1: I think that's a great question. And obviously, I wrote this book over 10 years. This book was already bound, you know, before the COVID crisis <laughs> hit. Um, so obviously, we're living in a different world. But I really do think that the principles I write about and the principles I've been thinking about and the principles that, to their credit, many planners have been aspiring to are going to remain in effect. And I think what's interesting is Joel Kotkin, who who is a great foil for you and me both, you know, God bless him. Um, You know, I think the world is leaning towards, say, the Richard Floridas and towards the urbanists who really do embrace cities and know what's wonderful about them. And Kotkin and a few others have sort of you know, tried to present a counter argument, which I don't find very convincing. But I think what's interesting is Kotkin has been presenting his arguments for well more than 10 years, for well longer than the COVID crisis. And, you know, likewise, I've been doing the same for my arguments. Um, So in this sense, I think he and I sort of neutralize each other in this particular moment, the extent that we continue to disagree. Um, But I think the question about density is, is is valid. And I think what I would say is that the benefits of great, you know, sort of well-run, well-conceived, dense cities um, far outweigh any purported, um, you know, epidemiological problem that they face. And I think that jury is still out. And, and what I mean by, you know, sort of well-run and well-managed, and, and I think great cities, and I think a lot of this is implicit in the book, great cities require... Participation of the residents. I think that in certain cities, there there is a civic spirit where people are aware of what their shared values are and aware of what's great about their place, and they participate in it. Um, And I could I could list a million examples. I think in California, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but I think that a denser LA, a denser San Diego, a denser Oakland, um, even a denser San Francisco, if people embrace the density. And if, there, there are, and if planners do their jobs well, then they can be great cities. I think density can be done badly, obviously, but anything can be done badly. Freeways can be done badly. We've done freeways badly for 50 years now. Um, so I don't think it's a matter of density versus not density. I think it's a matter of doing well, whatever it is we aspire to. Um, and in, 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 ter- in epidemiological terms, um, you know, something I wrote a couple weeks ago, which is obviously not in this book, is the idea that, yes, there's an urban component to, to the pandemic, but keep in mind the pandemic is still a medical situation, that is, what's going to cure the pandemic is going to be a vaccine, and hopefully that will come, making cities less dense, spreading out into the suburbs. That is not going to cure the pandemic. Um, And I think that we as planners need to keep our eyes on the long term, you know, on on the long term goals, the things that planners have been working on for 10 and 20 years now, and to maintain pride in that and to promote good urbanism. And, you know, knock on wood, we have to hope that the medical community, you know, comes up with what it needs to do and that planners can do what they need to do. And hopefully those are not at odds with each other.
0: Well, going to the question of civic spirit and community spirit and, and density, the other great debate that you deal with in this book is sort of the NIMBY versus YIMBY uh, debate, which um, uh, which has been at the center of California growth uh, for a long time. Uh, one of the things that I observed about this book and your writing is that is that unlike me, I'm almost a generation older than you, um, you are you are unabashedly embracing being a yidu. You are a journalist writing about these mm-hmm. topics, and yet you are you have a very clear uh, uh, point of view. How did you come to uh, being uh, an unabashed yimbi? Mm-hmm. I mean, I
1: I'll go back to my upbringing, which we've already talked about. That I being a child in L.A., I inherited this built environment, and. I think that what we don't always realize is built environments don't build themselves, they were choices that previous generations made. And I think any current generation is entitled to ask themselves whether those choices were good choices. And in the NIMBY YIMBY debate, I think, I don't begrudge anyone who wants us to lobby in their own interests, I don't begrudge anyone who has their own conception of what the good life is. But I do think that what what I do begrudge is when certain people have louder voices than others, and when those voices have prevailed, as I think they did in the second half of the 20th century, and when other people have to live with the consequence of those voices. So I see the YIMBY movement, which is generally pro-housing, which is generally skews younger, Um, which has its own debates. Um, There are different versions of Yimbyism. And and I reject the idea that Yimbyism is purely free market build everything. I, I, I do reject that. I do believe that we need to account for disadvantaged populations and we do need to account for affordable housing and so forth. But what I think Yimbyism fundamentally is, is providing a counter voice to what have been the dominant voices for generations. And The YIMBY voice is still softer, it is still less numerous um, than what I would call the NIMBY voices that have prevailed. And I think that we, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that, you know, for instance, YIMBYs tend to be renters. Renters don't have the mouthpiece of, say, homeowners associations, which are so powerful in California. There's no renters association. If anything, it's these different YIMBY groups that have popped up and finally at long last given voice to people who have have their own conception of urbanism. And that tends to be denser, it tends to be more housing. And those people have just as much a right to show up at a city council meeting to say what they want as does some homeowner who owns a $2 million home. So to me, that's just an expression of pure justice. And it happens to be a version of justice that I agree with, but I would say that for any group, every group deserves to have a voice. Um, and I think the YIMBY group is, is a crucial voice that has finally sort of come along after, you know, after being suppressed and being complacent and maybe not even realizing say in the eighties and nineties, what was going on with cities that that were bad for say, young professionals, young renters, or even older, you know, say seniors who would like to live in a more dense urban environment. Um, we had this dominant mode of urbanism that didn't have any contrary voices, for the most part. You, you were one of them, you know. I, I would say, um, but now I'm glad to see that that Yimbyism is on the rise. Um, and, and again, it should it should be nuanced and it should be discussed.
0: Okay, well, let's go back. We only have a couple of minutes left, so so let's go back to LA, which your which is sort of your um, your core location. And the the place you write about most in the book, I, I, L.A. is always interesting, but I think L.A. is at a very interesting moment, uh, temporarily hobbled by COVID. And, and Mayor Garcetti has been very aggressive in keeping the city shut down. But um, we're eight years away from the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, L.A. apparently wants to build every large infrastructure project that would come up in the next century between now and then um and and it has the potential to transform the city and make it much more urban i guess i'm wondering if you look forward to 2028 and the opening you know the opening uh, ceremony of the olympics how do you imagine la will be different what do we have to do to get there and and kind of what are, what, are, what are you afraid of that we might not be able to accomplish during that time mm-hmm. that's a great question so
1: setting the pandemic aside because that's obviously going to have an impact um i think that. We in LA are really proud of the transit investments that we have approved. We have light rail lines that are going every which way. The city of LA um, has new programs to promote more development around rail lines. And I think that's that's sort of good density. Um, so I think that, you know, in, in eight years, if you know, if you think about other older great cities and the way the transit networks, be it BART or be it the New York subway are just integrated in the city and part of city life. I don't think we're gonna get there in eight years, but I think we'll be on our way. I think that we'll be able to create new places and new neighborhoods based on transit stops and people will be able to mingle this diversity of LA. People will be able to mingle more readily. Um, I think the challenges are, are several. I think one of the challenges is just the resistance to you know, say we have a new transit line and we have new stops and we have potential to build great new neighborhoods on those stops. There will be people who are going to resist that. And those might, you know, are the the proverbial proverbial NIMBYs. And I think that we could get in a situations where we're arguing for so long that we don't get things built. Um, And the Olympics come and go, and we're still arguing. And I think we need to get over that. We need to, again, embrace a civic spirit um, by the way, I, I re- I've written about the Olympics and I wrote about the Olympics in the book. I don't necessarily love the idea of the Olympics as a catalyst. I, I'd like to think that we don't need the Olympics, that we have great ambitions without the Olympics, but to the extent that they're definitely coming, I think we should take advantage of them. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think another, an, another sort of peril that we face, if we do develop more, once we have these transit lines and we do, you know, develop new housing and so forth, I think there's a real peril that will develop bad housing that a lot of the developments we've had have tended to be really large, like covering an entire block and being six stories high. And they just sort of look like these monumental structures rather than true neighborhoods. And I think that's a function of how expensive it is to develop here, that if you don't have the scale of an apartment building that's, say, two or 300 units, you simply can't build smaller. And I think that if we look back to Jane Jacobs, where we started this interview, sometimes smaller is better. Um, Smaller can be dense. Smaller can accommodate a lot of people. Um, But we can have many smaller buildings rather than, you know, fewer enormous apartments. And I'm a little worried about, again, the aesthetics of what might come um, out of these new developments. But at the same time, you know, every aesthetic era has has its moment. And the things we build in the 2020s will look different from what we built in the 2000s and, and so forth. So maybe that's just part of the of the overall design history and,
0: of that and just part of the urban mystique as well right well um <clears throat> josh yeah. thanks very much for chatting with me today uh here on the cpdr podcast um the, uh, josh's new book is called the urban mystique you can buy it at solomarbooks.com or you can buy it on amazon and uh we'll be back josh and i'll be back in a week or two to talk about the latest developments in california planning so josh thanks again and Bill,
1: thank you again, and thank you for inspiring the book, and thanks to everyone else along the way who okay. me with the book. I'm really excited. Okay, I hope great. You'll enjoy it. Thanks. Thanks. I got to run. I got something else. Okay. okay. All
0: right. I'll okay, talk
1: to you. Okay. Cool. Here. That went great. Thanks a lot. Right. This has been the California Planning and Development Podcast. For more news and insight into urban planning throughout California, from Bill Fulton, Josh Stevens, and other contributors, please visit us on the web at cp-dr.com. On Twitter, we're at cal-plan, and we're on Facebook, too. This has been the California Planning and Development Report podcast. Please join us next time.